Welcome to Cataclysmic Comics Backpack. We're meeting in an abandoned cafe at the edge of a future catastrophe. My name is Ivan Kokmerik, and periodically, I prepare a guest for an adventure into a desolate apocalyptic landscape, and I provide them with a knapsack into which they can place five comics or graphic novels of their choice to accompany them through oblivion. Their very difficult job is to make those choices. Today's guest is James Whaley, founder, creator of Orb Magazine, purveyor of a few gallery shows, of some con events, co-founder of the Schuster Awards. Welcome, James. Well, thanks for having me, uh, Ivan. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, great. Well, we're here at our cafe at the end of the world. Can I get you something to drink? <laughs> some uncontaminated water. Okay, I've got my Pepsi, you've got your water. As far as I know, you were a Windsor kid, weren't you? That's where you were born and grew up. Yeah, I grew up in Windsor. I moved 6970 to Toronto. I moved after I graduated high school and came up to Toronto to go to the uh, Ontario College of Art. Let's back up a little bit, though, there. Yep. A kid in Windsor, what was the comic book world like there? And what was your first memory of a comic book sort of thing growing up in Windsor? Well, I'll tell you, the first comics I can actually remember picking up, grade school I went to, was on uh, Main Street in, in Windsor, Wyandotte Street. Uh-huh. Uh, J.E. Benson. Up the street from there was a, um, a secondhand shop. Had everything. Had clothes, had radios, had old TVs, had you know everything under the sun. And had a big box, cardboard box of comics. So it was sort of like a value village. Yeah, sort of like that. But it was like a, just a junk shop. It uh-huh. had, had everything. And it was in, in a guy's house. And out front... There was this crazy robot made out of uh, like stove pipes and oh, yeah. Yeah. that he had erected out front, which was, you know, a landmark. And back then, the place was maybe four or five blocks away from my grade school. And back then, you know, parents didn't mind the kids roaming around. It was oh, a yeah. more innocent time. So I would go up there and pick through this box of comics. And I think they were like two cents, five cents or whatever. They were really cheap in that. And they were all beat up. The ones I can remember picking up at that time, and I'm kind of embarrassed to say, was like uh, Jimmy Olsen's, Lois Lane and that. I can remember the, the old Jimmy Olsen, the crazy stories like the Turtle Boy. And yeah, I remember that. The Lad and that. But you shouldn't be embarrassed because a kid's taste is not the sophisticated taste of an adult. I mean, well, this is it. I'm maybe 10 or 12 years old and I'm walking up the street and these are the ones that attracted my attention. Back then, the DC comics had so many really crazy, wacky stories in that, you know, Batman interacting with aliens and all the stuff in that. And, you know, so that was the ones that attracted my attention at that time. Yeah, I I remember those well, too. So that was your first introduction. Yeah. Growing up and getting into high school, you said you came to Toronto for your high school. How did that come about? No, I didn't. Uh, after I graduated high school, oh. I came up to Toronto. But did you have anything to do with illustration or comics during high school? Uh, well, actually, all during grade school and all during high school. I mean, I always took art. Actually, there was a library right across the street from my grade school. Uh-huh. I used to enter art contests all the time. And there was a character in a book called Homer Price. I don't know if you remember. Yeah, I remember that. There was a cover with this donut machine. I remember the donut machine. They just kept spitting them out. I remember well, that was one of the books I picked up in grade school to read, too. And I drew a picture of that cover. People accused me later of tracing it, 
but I, I guess I'd done such a good job of, you know, duplicating that cover. I won first prize in the uh, <laughs> art contest. I got a copy of, uh, I wish I still had it. I got a copy of uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Really nice edition of that as the, um, the first prize. And I, I won a couple other, like, second prize in other, in, in other years. So I was always interested in art. And uh, when I went to high school, to an uh, all-boys school uh-huh. in Windsor called W.D. Lowe, and it had the best art program, renowned to have the best art program in Windsor. There were two teachers, uh, Bert Weir and Bob Monks, and they were the two uh, art teachers. Bob was more the commercial art, and Bert was more the fine art. Through those uh, years of high school, and like I said, it was an all-boys school, Though uh, the art program was the only, uh, pretty well the only course in the school that admitted a few girls. And now did comics play anything more than a background role up to this point? The Marvel stuff started to hit me probably in 62, 63, around there. Finding comics. I mean, there was a variety store in the corner uh, where I lived. But finding comics, you know, it was so piecemeal. It was like one here and one there. Yeah, that's true. There was really no place to specifically go to get issues. There were no comic shops, of course. Marvel really hit me harder than any other comics that were out there. You came through high school. You still didn't work in comics or do anything yet. You finished high school. And is that when you went to Toronto and and started at Sheridan? Well, no, I went to Sheridan after I went to uh, OCAD. Oh, yeah. So you went to Toronto first. I went to the art college. I was recommended by uh, my art teachers in high school. Mm -hmm. You know, the application and had to send in um, samples and that a portfolio thing and, and fill out some stuff. And I got accepted and went to the art college. Unfortunately, when I when I went to the art college, the school was in a lot of turmoil at the time. There was a new uh, president coming in, uh, Roy Ascot, uh-huh. and he changed the school around a lot. There was a clean definition between commercial artwork and fine artwork when I went to the school, when I initially started there. Within the first year or two that I was there, uh, there was a lot more melding of the two, and you could sort of yeah. your own, you could take a little sculpture, you could take a little... The school was getting so political, so many people resisting this new president of the school, and I wanted structure. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I wish I could say I, I, you know, could do my own, uh, set up my own course the way I wanted to, you know, plot my own course in that but i i really needed some outside structure and the school was not giving that to me so i was there for about two years and uh and then i had heard about a new course starting up at sheridan college in Oakville, yeah. and this was a a comic book uh course comic book art course uh-huh. and uh this guy um walter hansen was starting it up so i moved over to go to sheridan and got in there and went to Sheridan for a year. And this was the embryonic, the very first year of the course. Let me stop you for now, because I think we should mention your first pick. So you're, you're getting ready to start at Sheridan, but what would your first pick be for your knapsack? Well, I'm going to do these chronologically through the years. The first one that I would say would be uh, the Fantastic Four number 51 uh, mm-hmm. came out in 1966, and it was the uh, This Man, This Monster story. Yeah, with a thing right on the cover, sort of looking down. That's right, right. Yeah, really. And on the very first page, which I think is actually more powerful 
then the cover is him in a rainstorm. Yeah, I remember that too. And that story is a one and done. I mean, it's a thing really feeling kind of dejected and sorry for himself. He's this misshapen guy and he's wandering the streets and he meets up with somebody who takes him in and he has a bit of a, a similar um, physical structure to the to the thing. So he takes over the thing's basic uh, form and the thing reverts back to Ben Grimm. You would think he'd be really happy to do that. But then he comes, uh, the guy that took over his form comes to the Fantastic Four and comes to realize that all his jealousy, all his kind of hatred of Reed Richards and his success has been wrong. The guy is totally selfless. The guy is a hero. It's a story of real realization about that guy's life and about what a real hero is about and it's also about the thing realizing he wasn't so bad off i mean it has so much scientific stuff in it outer space stuff but real human drama and that's what would uh, come to your mind when you took it out of your backpack and got ready to read it oh of course the human jack sort of sensitivity balanced with the science yeah and jack kirby and stan lee together uh, well and especially jack kirby to me that's the cornerstone of so much of what gone forward since then in comics. I mean, I think those guys, they set the standard and not many people have reached that since then. You know, they were like the, uh, and people have said this before, they were like the Lennon McCartney of yeah. comics. Well, that's a good analogy, yeah. So you've got that first pick, FF51. Now let's get back to your story of uh, coming to maturity and how you got into art. Well, I went to Sheridan College after two years of the art college and I went there for a year, but like I said, it was the formative year as the embryonic year of the comic art course. It was chaotic also. I'd come out of one chaotic situation into school into another one. It was really not well formed. The teacher that was uh, heading it up was an English teacher and really you could tell after a few months of taking the course that it, uh, so much of what was behind doing the course for him was to bring in his <laughs> comic book heroes, Will yeah. Oxner, uh, you know, Bernie Wrights and Neil Adams and that and, and have sessions with them and get them over and wine and dine them, get them to sign books for him and do artwork and stuff and the course was really not hanging together that well i got involved with the student magazine that year uh it was called a magazine which mm -hmm. was a good name for a canadian magazine though it was not eh it was the letter a i designed the logo for the magazine and i was the art director for the magazine i lined up comic strips from other artists that i worked with that i was going to school with at the time and like set up the whole magazine and that did the graphic design of it after one year in the course and this is around 72 73 yeah yeah about 73 i didn't feel the course was progressing well enough it went on for a few more years then uh, they just went strictly back to animation at Sheridan but after one year in working on the magazine I guess I kind of got the publishing bug and uh, talked to a number of my friends that I knew at, at Sheridan and a few friends that I made at the art college that were into comics and we all pooled our money and thought let's put out a magazine let's put put a comic together ourselves hey, who were some of those guys that were at art college with you at Sheridan uh, Paul McCusker oh, uh, yeah. Don Marshall well John Allison who yeah, I went yeah. to the art college with the Ontario College 
College of Art. Oh, Matt Rust, of course. And, uh, you know, a number of us. And for the first issue, I think it was only somewhere around 75 bucks each yeah. and put together the first issue. It was magazine sized. It was black and white. And it was kind of uh, modeled along the lines of the Warren magazines in the sense it was not comic book size. It was magazine size mm-hmm. and uh, black and white on newsprint. Things like uh, creepy and eerie. and Yeah, but we had a wider range than that. We were doing... Your content seemed to be more like a heavy metal rather than, than the horror mag. I guess so, yeah. But we, we were open to pretty well anything. We were open to humor. We were open to fantasy. We were open to science fiction, superhero. Right across the board a little bit. Maybe to our detriment because it didn't have a real strong specific focus. We were trying to be something for everybody and that doesn't always work. But with this first issue of Orb, I hope people realize that what a breakthrough it was. You're bringing comics back to the mainstream, to the newsstand after they'd been away for a generation when the whites ended in 46 after the war. There was really nothing from Canada until Orb came out and hit the stands. Well, it was 74 and uh, I, I must correct you as far as hitting the stands because at the time for the first issue, our outlet was uh, Bud Plant, was Phil Sewling in the States. Oh, I didn't realize it. So it was like mail order and... Uh... Well, we would bring copies to them and they would get it into shops that were starting up then or into what were referred to as head shops at the time where underground comics were yeah. distributed. But in Canada, the first three issues, I don't think made it into the actual variety stores, which is pretty well about the only place where comics were available at that time. There wasn't a lot in the way of specialty shops. No, I didn't realize that. I thought right from issue one, they were on the stand. So it's a that's a good piece of information to learn. Well, we got a new stand distributor Pentamass, a company in Oakville, as of issue four, I think it was. And so four, five, and six made it into stores. But unfortunately, that was a bit of our undoing at the time also because the distributor that we got was more of a local distributor with high hopes of going national, going all across the country. And we were, I guess, a bit of an experiment for him, shipping out to Winnipeg, shipping out to Vancouver mm-hmm. for us. And as it turns out, out. And I, I guess, you know, just like anything to do with distribution or that sort of thing, there's a lot of, shall we say, under uh, or crooked dealing possibly yeah. you know, with that. And in a lot of the, the uh, cities we got into, uh, what we heard after the fact was that uh, a lot of the boxes came back to him, came back to our distributor unopened because there were bigger distributors, full-fledged national distributors who did not want to see our books on the stands because mm-hmm. They took out shelf space that they wanted their own books up on. So that really hurt us because uh, when we were doing it through Bud Plan and through Phil Sewing, we were totally selling out. They bought everything that we printed. And our print runs weren't really that big in the beginning. They got bigger as we went on. But as the print runs got bigger and the distribution got wider, we were getting so many returns. And returns not because they went unsold, because they didn't even get on the shelves. You can only bleed that sort of stuff for so long. Well, I'm glad you got that help from Bud and some of the other distributors and and got it out there through North America that way. But maybe you can answer one question for me. I've always had trouble. I still don't have a copy of issue one, all the other ones I can get. But number one seems to be harder to find. Was it just such a smaller print run? I think the first one, I could be wrong. I'd have to look in the records and probably Matt Russ would know better. I think it was only a print run of like 1,500 copies or so or Mm -hmm. 1,000 copies. I personally, and I'm embarrassed to say, I only have about, I think, three copies, four copies of my own. So Orb went for a six issue run in the end. Yeah. And uh, one of the characters you created in Orb, a co-creator, 
created, I guess, with Jim Craig was the most famous one. That's the Northern Light. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the Northern Light actually started as a spec script, something that's unsolicited. So it's like a, spec- a pitch. Yeah, it was a spec script actually done by TKC Brennan. Oh, yeah. He did a lot of work for the Warren magazines. And TKC had done this spec script for... Uh, Charlton, and it was for E-Man, the character E-Man that Nicola Cuddy and uh, Joel Staten did. I guess he sent it to Charlton and asked, you know, here's a script for E-Man, what do you think? And they said, well, the guys that do it, the guy that writes it and the guy that draws it, they don't need outside stuff. They're doing it themselves. And so he had the script hanging around. Uh, John Allison, uh, I got to know him, I think, through a convention he met him at, uh, T. Casey Brennan. Casey had the script on hand. He said, I wrote this for E-Man. You want to do this as a superhero book at uh, or a superhero story at Orb? And John took it and said, sure, yeah, we'd love to have your work in our, in our book. Now, at the time, it was just... Kind of a generic superhero story, mm-hmm. uh, and it was intended for E-Man. Uh, when it came to us, we obviously had to call it something else. Initially, uh, I was asking um, T. Casey what he wanted to change it to, and he said, "Well, call him the uh, call him the Phantom Canadian." <laughs> and I said, "Nah, I don't think that works." And then he got back to me and he said, uh, "We're talking on the phone about this," and he said, "Well, how about the, the White Light?" And I said, "Well," and then I put my hand over the phone and I yelled over to my my wife at the time and I said uh, he wants to call it the white light and there was a moment of silence and she yells back nah not the white how about the northern light I said that works so I said that to TKC and he said yeah okay go with that the northern light but like I said the first story and we broke it into two parts the northern light didn't begin till issue two did it Uh, that's right and like I said John Allison who brought the script to us from TKC he drew the first episode and it was our first color section the first issue of Orb was all black and white the second issue had a color section Hmm. which like i said was sort of molded you know along the idea of warren warren had all black and white and then a color section in the middle so we thought hey that kind of works because we couldn't afford to do a whole color book so john allison did the first chapter and then jim craig did the second chapter well how about your second pick now james you picked ff51 to go in the knapsack what would you pick for your second pick nick fury agent of shield number one yeah who is Scorpio with that classic cover with all the building blocks. As much as Jack Kirby and Stan Lee blew me away when I first was aware of their stuff, Jim Steranko, again, was somebody who in his output in comics is so finite, just a limited number of books that he's done and mm-hmm. gone out to so many other things, working on movies and putting out a premiere magazine and other stuff mm-hmm. about movies and other stuff. But his work on S.H.I.E.L.D., on Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., was just monumental. I mean, oh, he... Groundbreaking, yeah. Yeah, seismic. The repercussions through the field because of what he did on S.H.I.E.L.D. are still, you know, just reverberating Mm -hmm. to this day. You know, he worked for a few issues with Jack, with Jack Kirby, laying the stuff out. And then it was like he was fully formed. And that first issue he wrote and he illustrated it. And it had movie influence and it had surrealistic painting. It had so many influences and it all meshed into this perfect... Steranko was one of the few artists who there is almost nothing name on you know, on the on the fingers of one hand, the few things I've ever seen that Jim Steranko has drawn, created, that didn't impress me. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. But everything that he's done in his entire career has been impressive, just awe-inspiring. And I think the collector's market recognizes that because the Storenko issue is uh, is very sought after and very valuable. And you know, he's the he's the artist artist. He's he's the artist that so many other artists, you know, look to as as inspiration, somebody who just shook it up. You know, he shook up what was happening in comics at the time. It needed that shaking up. It needed somebody who would come in, talk about how the stuff was going to be colored, talk about how the stuff was going to be laid out, everything. I mean, he was, he came at it from so many different angles. That's a good a good word because he did have, he had perspective angles as well as different story angles and, and uh, visual angles. It was very cinematic. Oh yeah, of course. Jim Steranko, he was so perfectly himself. You know, you look at of Jim Steranko piece, you can see it a mile away. You know, it's so perfectly him. You know, and there's only a few artists like that. Kirby, obviously, mm-hmm. Kirby writes, and a few other people whose work you look at, it's unmistakable. And I think you're so right in pointing out that there are certain events or certain occurrences that seem to elevate the status and the, the artistic aesthetic of what comics are. Oh, yeah. Kirby did, and I think Steranko was one of them. People like Barry Smith, uh, like Frank Miller, like, all, well, it seems to be happening more now because there seem to be so many more good artists. Back there, it was, it was really noticeable and significant because it would be different from everything else that was around. Well, I'll tell you, it's the sort of thing like a seismic occurrence of his stuff coming up. Mm-hmm. Like, I was in a in a band, uh, in a rock band when I was in high school with a mm-hmm. few friends and that, and when the Beatles stuff was coming up, back then you know when Sergeant Pepper came out yeah and I remember down the street from me one of the guys in my band uh, Jerry we sat on his front porch we had the little record player there and we're mm-hmm. playing Sergeant Pepper over and over mm-hmm. again and it was like literally, you know, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but it was like deliverance from the gods. You know, it was like mm-hmm. like it impressed you so much and it just broke from so much stuff that had come before. Yeah. And Sergeant Pepper is that, and and I think Steranko is that. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So this is uh, your second pick, and and now you're finishing up at uh, you're still still at art at uh, Sheridan, going well, through Sheridan, the program. Sheridan, I did one year, and like I said, I got involved with the magazine. I got to know, you know, paste up and setting up the the magazine and stuff like that the school magazine and then i thought well let's do our own and then we went off well there were another bunch of people too that worked on the magazine uh people like george henderson vince marchisano art cooper yes um, yeah. a whole lot of people got their start there and produced a whole bunch of good work that people should uh, dig out and uh, and try and find. Well, George Henderson was like a mentor of ours during the time, wrote four great scripts mm-hmm. for the magazine. I think in the last issue that we produced, uh, issue number six, the Flame of El Haman that uh, Bill Payne illustrated, and Bill Payne had been doing stuff, or was starting to do stuff for DC Comics at the time. And I think that that is like the, the cherry on top of everything we did during or that story and that artwork is like the high point of anything we did during that time. I mean, George had been involved in some publishing on his own and, mm-hmm. you know, I've been a writer in the past. He, w- he was the only game in town, really, when it came to comic retailing and comic knowledge in Toronto when I first moved to Toronto. 
I mean, things expanded quite a bit after that. Mm-hmm. George, George really got the ball rolling. Now, I remember he started off some of the earliest cons in, in, in the street in front of his shop. That's right. And you also got involved in some cons as well. I think you did some at Old CAD, uh, some one-day cons. I was working at uh, Dragon Lady Comics. I was the manager uh-huh. of Dragon Lady Comics after Dave DiRigo was the manager there. Dave was getting out of working at the shop, suggested that I take over for him, which I did. And what year would this be around? This would have been around 84, 85, 86, around there. I was there for a couple years as manager. And along with managing the shop, I put on some conventions for the shop. The shop was doing a convention called TowerCon. And as manager, I started putting together the logistics of the TowerCons for them. So I think I did three, maybe four TowerCons. So, you know, after a couple years of working for them, I broke away from that and they were winding down as far as doing conventions. I was in interested in the whole convention thing. So from about well, late 80s, uh, maybe a year or two into the 90s, I put on conventions in Toronto. We did them in um, London, Ontario. We did them in Windsor, Ontario. We put on about 30, 35, I think, altogether uh, conventions. On pretty well, I think they were all one-day conventions. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had a whole range of people, Adam Hughes, Mark Nelson, who worked on the original uh, Alien comics, and Jim Lee, and a whole number people at the conventions. So that went on for a few years, but we were really surviving from one convention to the next. They were making okay money, but they were just like made enough to put on the next one and earn a little bit of income from it. The convention scene was quite different back then than what it's become now. What did you learn from doing those conventions? There probably was no cosplay, no... Uh, no, no cosplay. No big plus, names, picture signings. No. And plus, you know, we would not, at the time, uh, people like... Jim Lee and other people. I mean, we got Todd McFarlane. I got Todd <laughs> McFarlane actually for um, the Tower Cons when we were doing them uh, through Dragon Lady. But the guests were not asking for a, mm-hmm. a uh, an appearance fee. They came strictly. We paid their accommodation. We paid their, their transportation, flew them in, flew them back. And we gave them a little bit of spending money as far as, you know, if they wanted to have food at the rest, at the hotel mm-hmm. or whatever and that. But beyond that, they were on their own. I mean, it's become like everything. I mean, it's become huge business since then. And now everybody, you know, you line up forever to get $50 or whatever. And there was none of that. Everybody signed everything for free. Back then, people did, lots of them did sketches for free. No, it was a whole different world back then. And, you know, and it's just, to me, it's become way too commercialized since then. Yeah, I agree. But that's, you know, big business is, is the whole thing that's gotten into it. The fact that these people, generate properties that become mega billion dollar films so you know there's all that that plays into it so I guess it's understandable that it went that way but it's like anything you know it's even the whole fandom thing yeah. I don't know how you feel about this, but there was a time when, I mean, now it's acceptable to be, you know, a geek, to be a nerd, to be into mm-hmm. all the comic books and science fiction films or whatever in that. But back then, we were outsiders. Oh, yeah. Nerds. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I didn't mind that that time because so many of the people who have gotten into it now are, they just like the surface quality of the whole thing. They're not really deeply into it. They just think it's the flavor of the week sort of thing you know, to, to do that sort of thing you know to be into that so I guess it's great as far as the economy that's come out of it you know the big bucks that yeah. creators make and that but still there was an innocence back then 
Yeah, and there was a, you had to work at getting things. You had to find things. You had to, it wasn't just everywhere. I guess the one thing that's good is that it's, it's raised the quality and the amount of work that's out there in terms of comic books up. So it's permeating the society, but it's, uh, it's missing some of the heart that it used to have. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, how about now your third pick, James? Is it another seismic occurrence in comics? Well, seismic in the sense of, of the creators that worked on it. It's uh, 1972 now. My third pick would be uh, Batman uh, 244, uh, oh. the, demon, the Demon Lives Again. It was actually, I think, the last part of a three-part story. This is Neil Adams. This is Denny O'Neill. It was a period of Batman being accepted as a character that, that really could interact in the real world. I mean, they actually mm-hmm. showed, Neil Adams showed in this issue, Batman with his shirt off, hairy-chested Batman yeah. you know, kissing this woman and that. And it's like, whoa, is Batman like a real person or whatever in that? I mean, in his style of artwork, again, very much like Jim Steranko, you know, rippled through the industry in such a way to influence so many people I mean, he brought commercial illustration, realistic stuff into the comic field that almost nobody else could even touch at the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, when you look back at his Ben Casey comic strips, this man had the goods. He still is an amazing artist now. And I think he's... He's almost 80 or so, or he's really getting up there, but, and he can still produce amazing stuff. I wish he would let other people write his stuff these days, but back then with Denny O'Neill, I mean, the stuff that they did on Batman, I mean, there was a character that had languished for so long, had been the TV show, there'd been so many comedic sort of takes on Batman, and then Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams bring it right to gritty realism. That stuff was, it was just so impressive. And it was a break with a camp sense of Batman that we'd become in the mid-60s and through the late-60s. That uh, Ross al Ghul sort of trilogy and Batman as a human being. Exactly, exactly. I mean, that everything that came after that, Frank Miller, anything that anybody did after that, was all a reflection of what Denny and Neil brought to it. That gritty realism that you wouldn't see Batman, I mean, it doesn't make a lot of sense, but you wouldn't see Batman working in the broad daylight. He'd be a creature of the night you know he'd be so noir and yeah so- well you know what i see in your first three picks is you tend to go for things that show human beings in comics the human oh, being awesome. side of all the heroes ben Grimm's side nick fury's sort of artistic thing where he's depicted as somebody real rather than just a comic book character the bare-chested batman who's uh, getting beat up by ras al ghul well to me you know when i was saying about neil adams uh the work that he's producing now anything that neil puts out these days it seems like and i always have a feeling that he's kind of trying to live up to what the image guys brought out in the early days and that he's trying to be as bombastic as these guys were. In the days when he was working with Denny O'Neill on stuff, there was peaks and valleys. There was human drama. There was action. There was levels through it. That, to me, is what a good story is about. Yeah. The story I mentioned, the Fantastic Four story, This Man, This Monster, you 
know, it's not just a in-your-face action thing with science fiction. It's, it's human drama. And if you don't get that into a story, if you don't feel for the characters, to me, then it's just all smoke and mirrors. It's just yeah. you know, razzle-dazzle. Okay, so mid-'80s, you're putting on cons. Was it around this time Did you did, you did that uh, propeller art gallery show that I remember? I think it was in the mid-'90s. Mid-'90s. Oh, okay, I've got a decade out of place. But something I'd like to find out more about that, if you could speak about how that came about, the propeller art gallery show. Well, it was actually, it had to do with a lady that I was, was going out with at the time. She worked at that gallery. She was one of the... Uh, Curators? Curators, exactly. Yeah, she was one of the curators at the gallery. Where there. is that gallery? It was down on um, Queen Street near Ossington, just a, oh, yeah. a block or so east of Ossington. And so she worked at the Propeller. And as we you know, were a couple and talked about comics and all kinds of things, and she was drawing comics also. Uh, Ruth Tate, uh, she's an amazing artist. She's a fine artist and she's done a lot of comic work too. So we got talking about why not, you know, she works at this gallery. Why don't we put on a, a show there? And we called it Pop, and it was it was P P O P. It was panels, paintings, and other pursuits. And what we wanted to show was how these people that did comic books or comic strips could also have a well-rounded artistic output and produce other things. So we showed Jerry Lazar's commercial work, big things he did for magazines and and stuff he did for for jazz. I think he did some stuff for jazz albums and other people that not only did comic books, but did animation or did sculpture or other things. It was an amazingly uh, well-received uh, show. In fact, one of the guys, Scott Cooper, whose artwork was was in the show, a comic book artist, he showed other facets of himself because he had a band at the time and the band was set up the 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 night that we launched the show and they produced music for the event. So no, it was one of the most, from what I heard from the gallery, from the people that actually own the gallery, it was one of the, the best received shows that they'd ever had. It resulted in me breaking up with the girl that I, that I was going with at the time who was there. Well, she was, a, she was one of the curators and I wasn't. So mm -hmm. she felt that she knew better how to put the stuff on the walls and set up the stuff. And I just found a lot of the stuff was mixing stuff in the wrong way so I kind of overrode anyways such is life what about what can you tell me about Ed Furness and what his contribution to the show was what kind of a guy was he Oh, Ed was amazing. Ed, Ed became a fine art painter. We put a couple paintings of his, really beautifully framed paintings of his landscape stuff that he did. Now, you for know, people who don't know, Ed Furness worked for AA Comics, and he was one of the uh, artistic creators of uh, Freelance, for example. Freelance. That's right. I was visiting Ed at the time at a retirement home where he was and uh, arranging with him and his daughter to get access to these paintings to put in the show. And we were showing pre reproductions of Freelance also. He didn't have any freelance artwork, of course, but mm -hmm. we had reproductions that we, we put up to show his range of stuff and what he had gone on to. I felt so privileged to get to know Ed and I remember distinctly the very last time I saw him at the retirement home, and I think it might have been only a few months before he passed away. And uh, it was in a wheelchair, and I was just about to leave that day from visiting with him. I think we were bringing the paintings back. We were dropping them off with him. He's sitting in his wheelchair as I'm about to leave, and he pulls me down to within earshot, and he whispers in my ear, and he says, James, 
don't get old. <laughs> <laughs> he's right. He's right. But still, the alternative is better than Yeah, me. that's true. <laughs> now, James, you made a lot of good contacts, you know, being at Sheridan, starting up Orb, doing the cons. Somebody I haven't talked about you made contact with is uh, Dave Sim, for example. Dave Sim, yes. Dave came on as my uh, associate editor uh, around the time of the last issue of Orb. Going forward, he was going to stay on as as assistant uh, editor. Matt Rust had departed. I actually had parted ways with Matt because Matt was infuriating a number of the creators that were working for the magazine. So I found I had to work with so many of the creators that were doing work for the magazine because they didn't want to work with Matt. So I brought Dave Sim on. And, and this would have been before Cerebus came out, just before. Definitely. Yeah. And in fact, I had assigned two Dave Sim to work on a, on a series we were going to base on Alibaba. Dave did layouts for the first chapter of that and uh, did uh, a story treatment for it. And at the time, we were bleeding money at the time, as I said, because of the, uh, the distribution situation we were in. And we were looking around for partners to, uh, to hook up with to help us out to continue. Uh, we went to, uh, there, was a, uh, there was actually a guy that was running a, uh, a leather shop in, uh, in Toronto, uh, curing leather and, and producing leather goods and that Topper I, Topper was. And he was a big, big comic collector. I knew him through uh, Silver Snail. We talked to him and discussed the possibility of him becoming a financial asylum partner mm -hmm. with us. That didn't work out. We went to Heritage, I, th I can't remember the name, the company in Montreal. Oh, yeah, yeah. was producing uh, French-Canadian versions of the Marvel comics, yeah. reprinting them in, in Quebec. And we had some good discussions with them, but uh, that didn't pan out. And then basically it ran out of gas. We couldn't continue. And Dave went off and started up Cerebus within a year or maybe two years after he was associated with Orb. He did an issue of, I think it was Cerebus archive after Cerebus wrapped up after the 300th issue. Mm -hmm. but in this Cerebus archive, I think it was, he did a full issue on the things he learned not to do with Cerebus from working at Orb. <laughs> it was like a big section of this whole magazine about, I learned don't do it in color, have no color. Sure. And others and do it all by yourself and on and on. So like I said, Dave took a lot of lessons away from what we did and what we did wrong. And actually a number of the story ideas he was going to produce for the Alibaba strip went directly into Cerebus. So Cerebus really, you know, I don't want to take more credit than, than is due for that, but Cerebus in a lot of ways wouldn't have happened without his experience with Orb because it gave him a grounding of this is how you work on a and this is how you don't work on a magazine and this is how you could do it on your own and these are ideas that I came up with at the time that mm -hmm. all evolved into uh, into service. I mean, Dave and I are still good friends over the years. He's a character. Mm -hmm. But um, he's got such a, a kind heart that yeah. a lot of people don't realize about him. I mean, he comes off really gruff a lot of times. He comes off argumentative. He comes off controversial, to say the least. I mean, I, I accept Dave 
warts and all. There are a lot of things about him I wish he'd change. A lot of his opinions about women and that. But Dave's come to my rescue on a few occasions at some really low points. And, um, you know, I really I really treasure his friendship. Yeah, he didn't hesitate in helping me out with my Kickstarter with a few uh, prints, signed prints to uh, exactly. Exactly. help it up. So I feel the same way. Now, can we, can we ask you now for your fourth pick? Okay, my fourth pick would be um, 1973 from Marvel, Conan number 24, The Song of uh, Red Sonja. Oh, yeah. And again, like I was saying about Neil Adams or about Storenko, Barry Windsor Smith, Barry Smith at the yeah, time, yeah. but Barry Windsor Smith, really came into his own around that time. I mean, he had shown a lot of promise before. He kind of looked a little curvy, a little, a little like this, a little like that. But when he did that issue of the Song of Red Sonja, I mean, he just blossomed into this talent that is so formidable. He brought, you know, that kind of romantic renaissance kind of feeling to comics. There, there were so many other people that were inspired by that. I mean, I love to see guys that... Like I said, that you look at a Barry Windsor Smith piece and you just know it from across the room. You can see what he's bringing to his artwork that nobody else really touches. It's so such an identifiable style. And it's it's interesting, too, because you look at, you know, the variations of what he was doing before that. But then when he comes into his own He's distilled all that stuff into this perfect, you know, Barry Windsor Smith style that mm. that is so identifiable after that. And what would this issue give you if you pulled it out of the knapsack as well? Well, I mean, Conan, I love the Conan character and Conan also with the Red Sonja character then. You know, here was a guy who was so forthright and macho and, you know, mm-hmm. going his own way. And then he's shown up by this woman. <laughs> and there was a nice balance there where, you know, he got his kick you know she really uh she stood on her own in that i love the, the dynamics of it you know i mean it was just such a freewheeling sort of thing and the whole thing of bringing you know robert e howard bringing yeah the character into the comic world i mean that character as much as there was a following a certain amount of following in the paperbacks and stuff before then when it came into the comics boom i mean conan just exploded everywhere and then schwarzenegger and everything else you know all the other things that came from that that was around the time of uh women's lib starting to come out properly too wasn't it and red sonia you know was was a big i'm sure influenced a lot of i mean they talk about wonder woman and that but red sonia Mm -hmm. was you know on equal footing with um, you know with Conan and again when you know when you look at Dave Sim (laughs) like I said I mean I love Dave like a brother I mean he's he's such a sweet guy but he's uh, I I keep I'm reminded of this term that uh, Sybil Shepard used with the uh, the character in Taxi Driver from a from a song a walking contradiction I mean as much as Dave Sim rails against mainstream comics and stuff and you know and how they put creators through the meat grinder and all this stuff and other things and unfairness and and there's a lot of that that's true dave sims career so much of his career is based on i mean service in effect you know is a send-up of conan Mm -hmm. the stuff he's doing lately he's sending up batman he's sending up this and he's saying i mean as much as he rails against the the big two about 
DC or Marvel or whatever, he couldn't exist without the stuff that he sort of makes fun of, of them. No, I agree. I agree. Now, you also did at least one full comic for Charlton, didn't you? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it was uh, called The Blood, The Ultimate Barbarian, spelled B-L-U-D-D. And which year was this? It was 82, I think it was. It 82, was, that early, wow. It came out the same year that Gene Day passed away, and I think that was a at the time, Charlton had Charlton Bullseye, yeah. which was uh, like a tryout book. They were asking for people to send in submissions to be published in this. We weren't going to get paid for it. We were going to get copies of the book when it came out. And they brought out 11 issues, I think it was, altogether. You know, so I sent in a proposition to them. And Gene Day at the time, when we first started up the stuff for Blood, Gene had done an initial bit of stuff for, for Blood when we were doing Orb. And that's what was originally going to be published. Sorry. It was going to be published in the seventh issue of War. We got up to... I remember an ad on the back of the sixth issue of War. That's right. The sixth issue we advertised for the seventh issue and Blood was going to be in that. Gene had done uh, the very first chapter of it. It was going to go in the seventh issue. Seventh issue never came out. So that laid in my filing cabinet for a long time. And then when this opportunity came up at Charlton, I thought, well, let's dust that off and see what we can do with that. And Gene at that time, was working for Marvel, was going to start doing work for DC. So we we had a chapter already done. We showed it to people at Charlton. They loved what they saw. They Of course, it was Gene Day's stuff. They said, okay, make a full issue of it. So we got Vince Marchesano mm-hmm. do a chapter. We got uh, Peter Sue, uh, this guy Peter Eero, who I wish I'd know where he is these days, but he was in Buffalo. How do you spell that last name? Uh, I-R-O. Peter Eero was very well known in a lot of the fanzines doing all kinds of mm. stuff. Great letter, great anchor, great artist really. And he inked, yeah, he inked Vince's and he inked uh, Peter Sue's mm. and lettered those two chapters. And Vince did the cover of it, which Gene was kind enough at the time Gene Day to ink mm. the cover. And there was a few things in the first chapter that Gene had done initially for Orb that we needed to change just to work it into the full story. And Vince drew some new panels, which Gene inked to match up for the whole look of the first chapter. Yeah, I was, to see that come out in print in a color comic out on the newsstands and that was really a thrill, and I wish I hadn't overwritten it so 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 much at the time. I mean, I tried to cram so much stuff in it. You know, you live and learn. No, it was a great experience, and a lot of people I still see on Facebook all over the place, a lot of fandom that still chime in occasionally saying, hey, I picked up this old issue of Charlton Blood. Man, I wish, you know, I love that issue and that. And there's still hope if I can get Vince on board, you know, he's busy with a number of other things. But uh, we're still looking at doing some more with the Blood character. I've got a script that I wrote. Actually, it turns out there was a, a character called uh, uh, Baroness Van Blood at Charlton, which I didn't know about. And her last name, Blood, is spelled the same as Blood the Barbarian. I worked out a story where she's kind of thinks because she's a vampire and she lives into the future and blood's based in the future she kind of thinks she might be related to him mm. there's a little story that we worked out with those characters oh, i'd love to see something like that come out well if i can get vince to to do it <laughs> can i ask you now for your last pick you've got four great picks i'd like to find out what your last pick is james well uh we're going to jump all the way to 1986 and i hate to be a cliche in this sense but it's watchmen if i can only pick one issue it would probably 
probably have been the sixth issue of Watchmen, which is the Abyss Gazes also, and is the, the episode that basically is built around Rorschach. To me, that particular issue of Watchmen, what it reminds me of in that is, you know, the character Rorschach was probably in some ways the most despicable character in the Watchmen, but also the most wounded one of all of them. And he reminds me in a lot of ways, may seem like a tangent, but you know, sometimes you'll you'll pass somebody on the street and they're they're asking for a handout or or whatever in that. Yeah. And, and you might dismiss them out of hand. You walk past, and I, you know, I, I hate to admit it, but I've probably done it many times myself. And you kind of misjudge what they're about, and you don't know their backstory. You don't know what brought them to that point in their life. Whereas you look at uh, the Rorschach character in that Watchmen story, you know, and he he grew up, his mother was a prostitute, you know, he was slapped around as a kid, he was, he was discarded as a person. And a lot of those aspects is what brought him to where he is in that story that day. To me, that, that's that sort of human drama that those layers under the surface quality of what that character is about that I can appreciate. I can appreciate you know, just knowing that there's more to the character than just an interesting costume and just mm-hmm. the way the character interacts with the other characters. To know all that backstory, I find that as interesting as you know the, the stuff that's right in your face than anything. So anyways, yeah, Watchmen. And I know Watchmen you know is on so many people's lists and that but again alan moore what can i say i mean you know alan moore's stuff as the saying goes you know blew my hair back i mean he just (laughs) but alan moore you know just brought such a an intensity to the comics industry yeah just a wealth of knowledge and a wealth of just high, high quality writing in that. I mean, I did not like everything that Alan did, but the stuff I liked that he did just knocked me out. I mean, um, and his output just, it's stunning. I mean, it's like he's cloned himself, you know, for half a dozen people or so because his scripts and I've heard legendary stuff about his scripts, you know, for one page, he would write five or six pages of text describing in minute detail everything in the room and that to the artists and that and and the thing is with his scripts I've also heard that what why he did that in a way was that if they only delivered 25 or 30 percent of what he put into those three or four or five or six pages of description that he would still get as much as he would have wanted for the story and he always told artists uh, again it's another thing that's legendary he always said you're the visual creator of this run with it the way you want to and i'm sure whatever you deliver you know what i put down here is not carved in stone just an immense immense talent i I feel so bad that he's walked away from comics so much of the stuff that's been done with his material since then you know by dc by warner brothers picking over the bones of the stuff that he did in the past shows such a lack of creativity by a lot of people who should come up with their own good stuff they treated him badly you know and then they they want to run with so much stuff that he's created in the past to me it's unfair but that's a whole other story well your picks all five of them seem to center around good character good storytelling and great art all combined into each one of those issues. Of those five books, what we usually ask now is if you could save only one of them in the backpack and you had to get rid of the other four, 
Which one of those five issues would you save? Uh, my first choice, the FF51. Yeah. Yeah. What Jack and, and Stan created together, that melding of those two talents, they set the template for so much of what's gone on since then. There wouldn't be an industry the way it is today if they hadn't done what they did. Stan and Jack, to my sensibilities, what interests me in comics, characterization, that family dynamic in the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Science fiction, the adventure and everything. No, that's the one I, I would take. You're right, because prior to that, the writing in comics seem to be such uh, two-dimensional stuff. Stories of battles and fights and monsters and things like that. Exactly. You could in, you could interchange what one character said to another. You know, Green Arrow would say the same mm -hmm. thing that Batman would say, the same thing that The Flash would say or yeah. whatever. When the Fantastic Four started to happen, the thing was saying this and Johnny Storm yeah. was this way. And you They know, weren't cutouts. They were exactly. human beings. Yeah. Exactly. No, I agree with that. Well, before we wrap up, I'd like to ask you about stuff that you're doing now. Is there anything you want to share with us about what's going on now and might come out in the future? Well, I am um, working on a book, biographical book on Captain George Henderson. I'm working on that with two other creators, Rob Lamberti, mm -hmm. who's a, a crime reporter for the uh, Toronto Sun and, uh, and a big, big, big comic fan, and Alan Sant, who is a, an amazing graphic designer. And we're putting together a book about George George Henderson, uh, George, I think, had a seismic effect in Toronto yeah. comic book fandom and comic book collecting and stuff and had a big, big impact in my life. Uh, I've always wanted to bring to the general public those accomplishments of George. And there's other aspects about George, too, which, well, when the whole thing comes together, you'll see what we uh, what we present. But uh, I'm excited about the book. Oh, yeah, I think it's a much-needed work uh, because of the role he played in the 60s, sure. the 70s. And he was just all over media, uh, bringing pop culture to everybody and saying yeah. there's something here that has to be looked at. I mean, not only for collectors and you know aficionado yeah. fandom and that of comics but creators of comics in Canada I think you know the influence of George's shop and the influence of how the the medium was coming into its own they wouldn't have thought to go forward I mean myself with with Orb magazine I mean George had such a great influence on you know writing mm -hmm. spectacular scripts for us and just encouraging us to no end, you know. I mean, George was our biggest uh, cheerleader for the whole thing. So uh, there's that. I've also been trying to get off the ground uh, Northern Light Compendium, uh, which uh, hopefully we'll do a, a Kickstarter for next year. And uh, that would be about 120 pages to collect all the material that's been and done with the Northern Light, clean up some of the flaws in the way stuff was printed before. We might be looking at doing the stuff that was black and white stories in color. Mm. There's a lot of unpublished stuff that uh, other That would be great to see. Ken Stacey and a number of other people have done some Northern Light drawings and that in the past, all that stuff would be collected together. So yeah, I wanted to see a compendium of that. And then also going beyond that, I'm hoping that my old creative partner on the Northern Light, Jim Craig and I will get together and produce some new material for the Northern Light going forward. And again, I think Kickstarter, maybe uh, I like the, the sort of um, template of uh, Hellboy, which uh, mm. Matt, yeah, Mignola, Mignola, yeah, Mignola did with Hellboy, which is rather than monthly, monthly, monthly churning out stuff, nice little 
like six issue limited series that mm-hmm. come out. Then there's maybe a pause between that, maybe six or eight months, and then another six or eight issue series, and then those collected. To me, it's a more um, frees up creators to do their best work rather than just trying to pump out, you know, meet a deadline every month mm-hmm. to stuff and that. Uh, and also possibly, and this is the way the world is going as far as the actual publication of the stuff, maybe seeing those issues the limited series come out online comicsology mm-hmm. or whatever and then the only thing seeing print is when they're collected together after that and put into a trade paperback and collected volume well i'd look forward to all three of those projects i wish you success in them oh thank you well let's see we've got you with your backpack and your five books in there okay let's open the front uh, door of the cafe and uh show you the desolate vista you're going to head into. We'll give you one more thing, because I always like to see what people will say. We'll give you one superpower you can choose to take with you. I would say super strength, and Mm. I would hope super strength would combat a number of aspects of getting older, arthritis or whatever, and that super strength to uh, get through the older years. Yeah. Also something else you'd mentioned in some of the other sessions, one luxury. Oh yeah, why did I forget about that? Yeah, one little luxury that doesn't have any sort of uh, usefulness to it, but something you'd like to take along with you. Okay, if I was there and I was by myself in an apocalyptic situation and that, the one luxury I would like is just maybe a tablet or something that I could see a video on and maybe just one video and that would actually be a birthday video that my daughter did in the last year in this coronavirus year for my birthday with a lot of people my son his family my daughter you were on in the video oh yeah yeah that to to comfort me through the uh, the apocalyptic years and that but that would that would be the one luxury i would like is to have that to be able to see the um, the people that mean a lot to me what a great choice. And I hope you'd be able to find a place to charge that each time so you wouldn't run out after a couple of days. <laughs> it has a solar panel on it. Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Well, James, that brings us to the end. Uh, thanks for doing this with us. I found out a lot about you that I didn't know, and uh, I hope other people will look into your work a bit more. Thanks for being part of this. Well, thank you for asking me, Ivan. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and it's always you know a pleasure to reminisce about stuff and that. And I mean, I have the highest respect for the stuff that you've produced <laughs> in the past. And you know, we got projects uh, which we won't talk about here, but things in mind in the future that we'll. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks again. Thank you, James. Thanks very much. Take care.